Just in case you'd forgotten, we've been talking about community over the last few months and uh, looking at that through the book of Acts. And uh, today we're going to talk about money. Uh, There are two reasons why I've been asked to talk about it. The first is that I'm not on the payroll, so I have no conflict of interest. Uh, The second is that... um, they have a whole range of issues with money, um, a very unhealthy relationship with it. So this is part of my therapy to talk to you today. In fact, this is going to be group therapy, except the reverse of how it normally operates. So you, the group will be the therapist, and you're going to help me work through my issues. So community and money. Uh, The most obvious passage to read in Acts about this issue is uh, Acts 4, 32 to 35. Uh, If you can't read that, I think there are some Bibles on the table. Sometimes there are. There might be some at the back, but hopefully you can read it from where you are. I'll read it out to you. My voice is a bit thin. It's good for my um, Johnny Cash impersonation, but not so good for speaking. So I might have to cut this short. Hallelujah. But uh, we'll just see how we go. The whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what, what I need your help with is this question. This is my problem. I can't imagine selling our two-bedroom Edwardian weatherboard with northern, north-facing backyard and putting the money at Stephen Louise's feet. That's my problem. So how come Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, a.k.a. Son of Encouragement, was able to do it and I wasn't? That's what you need to help me with. It's a genuine question. Why is it that I can't imagine selling my place and putting the money at the feet of the leadership here. My my first thought was uh, that perhaps they were just selling holiday houses. (laughs) Yeah. Because it does say it was a a field. Obviously he didn't live there unless he was camping. So just excess property. But I'm not sure I can get out of it that easily. So what do you reckon? What, What is it about... My context, what is it about me? Don't pull any punches. What is, it, what is it about our context? What is it about me that makes this passage and what's described there seem so incredibly unlikely in this context? 
Do you want a microphone? Maybe because they thought that Jesus' return was really imminent and they weren't having to think long-term. They were thinking any day now he might come back, so we don't need to think about the future. Yeah, that's, that's a really big one, I think, that Jesus had just ascended very recently and um, he'd, he'd given them all this teaching and the, the apostles would have passed this on, this stuff about, you know, that... Uh, Jesus' teaching that made it seem like his return was, was imminent, was just any day now. And so um, the idea of, um, you know, building your super, planning for your retirement, you know, being appropriately insured, all of those kinds of things probably weren't big issues for this community because I thought, yeah, a couple of weeks, we're out of here. I just read that passage that said great grace was upon them, that they had incredible grace and maybe that enabled them to do that. And I think grace is quite a powerful thing and we've done things in grace and we've later gone, what the... But it's grace. It could be part of it. I have often been described as graceless, so there could could be something in that. Yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, yes, you were. Um, I could be wrong, but wasn't part of the Jubilee um, theology that you did return the land to redistribute again? So I'm wondering whether they were in that sense fulfilling what for thousands of years the Jews hadn't done up until that point. Uh, I am... Um because I'm a girly swat, I, uh, if anyone recommends a book when they're speaking, I always try to find it on the library system. They're like the Victorian library system. So Rabbi Fred Morgan, uh, if you weren't here, he came. He's spoken here twice and he came a few weeks ago and spoke to us. Um, and it was, it was amazing. And he recommended this book, The Dignity of Difference by Jonathan Sachs, who's the kind of head rabbi in England. Uh, the head of the kind of, I don't know, Council of Rabbis or whatever they're called. Um, it, it's an absolutely magnificent book, so I'd highly recommend it. It's in Wangaratta, but uh, <laughs> if you place a hold on it, yeah. Um, and he talks exactly about, about the way that God set up the notion of distributive justice in, uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy um, and one of the, the key parts of that was the year of Jubilee, where every 70 years, 50 years, I think it's 70 maybe, you know, sevens are always good, 50, it was 50, there you go, every 50 years, because uh, all, the, all the tribes were allocated, everyone, every family was allocated a certain amount of land initially when they, um, after the genocide in Canaan, and um, they, uh, the idea was that every 50 years, if through transactions someone built up a lot of land and someone was ended up having no land, that um, every 50 years you'd have to reset the system so everyone would go back to what they originally had. And, yeah, the idea was that... Um, um, uh, I'll skip ahead. Let, let's, let's do it this way. I hate linear. Come on. Here we go. Um, so uh, Rabbi... 
Jonathan Sachs talks about this word, um, I'm going to pronounce it terribly, but sadaka. And it's a word that combines our notions of justice and charity. So he said in English, those two ideas of justice and charity are different. But in, uh, in this word, Hebrew has a notion of kind of social justice and distributive justice that is um, actually a com- combination of justice and charity, or, rather than giving a terrible explanation like that. I'll just read a bit of the book. The two words... Oh, no, here we go. It's difficult to translate sadaka because it combines in a single notion, in a single word, two notions normally opposed to one another, charity and justice. Suppose, for example, that I give someone £100. Either he is entitled to it or he is not. If he is, then my act is a form of justice. If he is not, it is an act of charity. In English, a gesture of charity cannot be an act of justice, nor can an act of justice be described as charity. Tzedakah is therefore an unusual term because it means both. It arises from the theology of Judaism which insists on the difference between possession and ownership. Ultimately, all things are owned by God, creator of the world. What we possess, we do not own. We merely hold it in trust for God. The clearest example is in the provision in Leviticus. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. You are merely strangers and temporary residents in relation to me. Leviticus 25, 23. If there were absolute ownership, there would be a difference between justice and charity. The former would be a legally enforceable duty, the latter a moral obligation at most. In Judaism, however, because we are not owners of our property but merely guardians on God's behalf, we are bound by the condition of trusteeship, one of which is that we share part of what we have with others in need. What would be regarded as charity in other legal systems is, in Judaism, a strict requirement of the law and can, if necessary, be enforced by the courts. It's an extraordinary idea. And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's um, an enacting through the spirit of this principle of distributive justice which has been there right at the beginning of Judaism but which has been ignored. My, my understanding is that that year of Jubilee happened once and never again in the history of, of the people of Israel. So getting back to our question, how, how else, what else am I missing? Just following on what you said, um, I was thinking that perhaps the reason of being unable to sell an Edwardian two-bedroom house is because um, we, the way we project ourselves onto the world is, uh, if not through ownership of things or property, it's um, through experiences. So um, to, to let go of the ownership of the thing is to deny yourself status um, um, in society and then to create sort of anxiety as to where your value lies or what your worth is. Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. Any other thoughts? Thanks. Back in the 70s, for those of us who were around, 
um, yeah, there was a big push at that time for communal living and it wasn't just Christian, you know, it was the hippie age and all that. Um, and, it, and I was in London at the time and uh, met a guy who'd sort of been pushing that and written a book about it and a lot of families decided to at least move in with other families. So I think it was, it was a contextual thing of, of the era of that time and it hasn't you know maintained but I don't know if I think the whole sense of community was part of what pushed that along and also that people were prepared to give up their own independence and negotiate and be able to you know sort of rub rub against each other and and put up with difference and things like that so much to the point where they could actually live together so and and it was successful in some er, er, areas, and you know it does continue in some areas still today. Okay, so let, let's not talk about living in community. Um, the taxation and welfare systems. I guess could we argue that these days, with our higher taxes and better welfare system, it probably goes to your earlier point. Um, that our context is different, and we're already we're already in effect doing that, even though not maybe quite as well as maybe they did. I uh, I'll, I'll come back to you now because I just want to follow up on a couple of those things. Um, I think one of the the interesting things that came out of the seventies and that notion of living communally was that um, it was generally uh, sorry, genuinely countercultural, um, in the positive sense, but also in the sense that uh, when you're going against such an incredibly strong current, social current or cultural current, it makes it very difficult to sustain, which is why I think a lot of those uh, experiments with communal living couldn't survive, because in the end, um, individualism... Um, and consumerism and autonomy, these, these values are so intrinsic to the way that we view the world that it's incredibly difficult for us to give up those. And I, I have students from India, Pakistan, living in multi-generational families. And, um, and uh, this, this idea finds real focus for me when I think about their situation. And I think there's something so attractive about the idea of living in a multi-generational family with, uh, when you've got, especially when you've got little kids, the idea of having grandparents and aunts and uncles around to look after the kids and sharing responsibilities with cooking and all of that kind of stuff. And yet, on the other hand, it's an unthinkable idea because of what I feel I would have to give up. And, and I think that's one of the massive challenges for us. We, we feel like we need to protect our autonomy in all sorts of ways, but one of them is financially, because the last thing that we want is to be dependent on someone else, to have to live under someone else's roof in, and, and give up our autonomy that way. And you look at the way we treat our old people, and I think that is a real, a very powerful and very sad symbol of how this plays itself out um, in our lives. We'll come back to that a bit later, but there are a couple of other people. I've got a nap. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, things like that are very difficult and giving up your possessions are very difficult. I think these guys were probably imbued with such a great sense, and I think this lady here pointed out, of the grace of God and this grace that just came upon that community to just just to bow down to people that, that um, you know, previously that they felt that they had a higher status of and, and give their, themselves and give their money um, over to a, a wider community for the benefit of this beautiful spiritual thing that, that had just occurred. Um, I do think in this society, though, that we've started bowing down to other things, and I think we have established these taxation laws and charitable codes in our system to almost, yeah, as an alibi for some of our other sins. And I don't think it's working because there's still such great injustice. Um, and I think huge, huge, huge property ownership and the teachings of the New Testament don't seem to quite marry. I don't know if, I guess is what I'm saying, capitalism and the New Testament fully marry. That's my belief. It's another way in which this book is amazing and I guess wrestling with exactly those issues of the market... um, and whether the market is inherently evil or whether it is something that is, um, is legitimate in its place. But when it kind of spills over its proper boundaries and starts to infect every aspect of our lives, market capitalism, then, um, then you perhaps get exactly what you're describing. Before I'm going to get a couple of other people, but I just want to uh, say, um, talk about one more thing in relation to what Nat was saying. Um, if I can find it, um, that I think there is a danger with this kind of passage that it, <laughs> the flip side of our individualism is that we take on individual guilt about a lot of these issues and you beat yourself up about why am I so selfish? Why am I so obsessed with my own security? Why can I not follow the clear teaching of the New Testament in this area? It's something inherently to do with me. Now, that might be the case for me, but not necessarily for all of us. Um, And I I do think that um, we need to remember that this is uh, our culture. It's not just um, some in some kind of context-free situation and some context-free situation, they did this and we acted selfishly. Um, We are... Uh, really um, powerfully constrained by um, the system in which we live. And if everyone else is striving after autonomy and individualism, for us to flow against that is terrifying. Um, and that's that fear that we all have in a culture like ours of, of having nothing when we're old, of being abandoned and all of these are very real fears. And it's... it's um, it's not a situation where you just need to beat yourself up with guilt, but it's a situation where we need to recognise the need for community, I think, that if we're to face this at all, if we're to compete with this powerful force at all, then we need um, 
to find people that we can commit to, to find an alternative, a legitimate alternative with, um, where we reconnect with each other. But again, that's terrifying. It's like what Shane was saying last week uh, at church camp, just that fear that he has, and I think a lot of us have, that, um, that this church will just be a flash in the pan, that within a few months something else exciting will come up, people will move on, and um, the kind of serial monogamy that characterises so many aspects of our life will just continue to be what characterises um, our church lives. And one of the most powerful things that um, Jonathan Sachs talks about, that was, oh, um, sorry, that's from my sex talk. How did that get in there? <laughs> he, um, and this is something that Rabbi Fred talks about as well, covenantal versus contractual relationships. Um, I'm going to read another section to you because I just think... This is awesome. Um, what am I looking at? 155. The loss of loyalty extends into private life as well. There are many reasons for the extraordinary breakdown of the family that has occurred throughout the West since the 1960s. One, though, surely, is the intrusion of market values into areas that had previously been immune. A consumer-driven, advertising-dominated culture militates daily against ongoing attachments. It is constantly inviting us to switch to a different brand, try something new, go for a better deal elsewhere. It should come as a surprise. It should not come as a surprise that this begins to affect human relationships as well. A society saturated by market values would be one in which relationships were temporary, loyalties provisional, and commitments easily discarded. It would, in short, be one in which marriage and every other covenantal relationship makes little sense and that by and large is what is happening time itself in the new economy works against the institutions of civil society when people are forced as they are now to work harder be constantly on call by fax uh, this book is obviously a bit old <laughs> by fax cell phone voicemail and email time that used to be spent on family and friends voluntary work is no longer there it is not just that work has become more demanding and involves more travel and more frequent relocation it's very insecurity forces people to work harder in case next month or next year they no longer have a job at least one that pays as well the result is that people at least during their work lives have less free time to spend on non-economic activity Work that used to be done within the family, from childcare to preparing food, is increasingly being done by someone else for pay. The family is becoming downsized and outsourced. Parents spend less time with their children, who in turn spend more time watching television or glued to the computer screens. Uh, obviously, the focus here is on family, but I think it, you know, it applies equally to any kind of small community. I'll just finish with this quote. Um, when most relationships become commercial relationships and every individual's life is commodified, commodified 24 hours a day, what is left for relationships of a non-commercial nature? Relationships based on kinship, neighbourliness, shared cultural interests, religious affiliation, ethnic identification and fraternal or civic involvement. 
when time itself is bought and sold and one life's become little, one's life becomes little more than an ongoing series of commercial transactions held together by contracts and financial instruments? What happens to the kind of traditional reciprocal relationships that are born of affection, love and devotion? So what does happen to them? You wanted to say something? I think there's um, the there's one thing that I see in terms of now and, and our context of where we are now is that we often are trying to get the best deal that we can, that we often can't appreciate what someone gives us for the time that they've spent. And so we constantly are trying to save ourselves money for some unknown reason. And it's that idea of that, well, if I can save, you know, a certain amount of money on a car or, and we're always wanting the best deal for what we can get. Um, And I think that's where we can never appreciate a true value of someone's worth or, or the product that they make or something that they can offer us because we want the benefit and forget that there's a person on the other side of that and we just see the item that we receive. Sorry about that. Um, I just think it's interesting just what you were reading then about, um, yeah, that long-term community thing. And I think that's such a big thing that we are fearful of committing to people for a long period of time um, because then when, you know, there's issues or when there's conflict, we actually have to face that and figure out how to work that through and how to actually be in relationship with people for a long time is a difficult thing and it's very easy to just jump ship when it um, gets too hard. And it's interesting, I was at my nan's place yesterday um, and she's been living in the same house for oh, 50 or 55 years um, and and it's a revolving door of very fascinating people that come in and out of that house. But yeah, I was just thinking about that just yesterday, how interesting it is that all the neighbours are the same and they have, you know, all lived in this little neighbourhood for yeah, 50 or 60 years, many of them. And it's just struck me at how unusual that is and how fascinating it is to have, yeah, these people that they know lots about their love, but who they, you know, everybody's had issues with everybody else, but there's never been an option to move on anywhere else because they've never been in a place to do that and how they just have to figure out how to live together and how to make it work. So, and I think many of us have the option to not have to do that. Um, there's an incredibly intimate relationship between the giving and, and the rest of the relationship. You know, if the, with, the, with those early believers, what were they giving to? Were they giving to people? Were they giving to the work that was, was going on? And, you know, there's, giving's a bit like sex in that you, it's about, it's an outworking of the relationship, but it's also an investment in the relationship. So if you, if you really believe in the relationship, you'll, your your money and what you do with your money will be you you'll give to that so if we i mean you know we've been in a situation where we've you know given money to 
effectively something that was quite cultic. And so, you know, we've seen the worst of it, but also we've seen the best of it where you'd be with people and you'd give to each other, give to individuals, and it would be an incredibly liberating... Like, it'd be really hard to give you possessions, but really liberating and a great blessing. So it's really about the strength of the relationship and what you're, you're giving into. And I think it is both... It, it is incredibly liberating, but you have to be very careful about what you're giving to... And, and, and why you're giving. But I think, um, you know, our ability to give to this community financially is an incredible way that we invest in it and we also then need to know, well, what's happening with that money and what's it being spent on. So it's all underpinned by that relationship. Uh, perfect segue to... Because <laughs> um, I think that that's, that's beautiful and that is um, something that I've been thinking about a lot this week, that I am... Um, Bit of a tight ass. Susie, one of Susie's nicknames for me is Mr. Thrifty, and uh, and yet I would I would sell everything, give up every part of my body, sell every organ, whatever, if one of my two girls needed that money. Um, so so that's exactly it. It's it's about relationship. If if you have the right kinds of relationships, it's like generosity is drawn out of you, in spite of yourself, and. The challenge is how, how do we become family in this community? How do we have relationships of that quality that we can't help but be generous to each other, that we can't help but give things up for other people's needs? And it's funny too, I think about how often you'll give money to a brother or sister that you don't like, but you wouldn't give money to a friend that you really do. And a lot of it is to do with, with time, with um, the sense of th- this person's w- with me for life. You know, th- these are the people that God has given me for my whole life. And, and that, again, it, that draws out um, generosity. And so I think it's incredibly important that we realise that this issue of money in the end is about covenant. It's about if we can have covenantal relationships with each other then we will become generous if we avoid them or find them too difficult or don't um, take the chances to to hang in there with people and and find that intimacy then it's never going to happen i think i think of um scriptures like the the sermon on the mount where jesus talks a lot about idealism and and ideas like you know turning the other cheek or if someone takes your cloak give them you know, your shirt taking giving your cloak as well and and ideas about how they that they're they're great ideals but if we look at it on an individual level it's they're almost that they they're ineffective like we wouldn't we think of non-violence we think of um you know being open but we wouldn't we wouldn't leave our doors unlocked while we well, most of us would leave our doors unlocked, or we wouldn't. Um, you know, we have we have an army as a nation, and, and things like that. But but in this situation, there's there's I, think, I guess they've got a critical mass going where he, they can give, knowing that they're that no one is without need. So they because of the community. And I think that like the individualism, the gospel, and these ideals of Jesus don't work on an individual. In an individual basis, it only can work when we see it working in the community environment. Yeah, exactly. It is ultimately it's about the build-up of trust, without which you just can't. These things don't work, and and that's where we need 
rather than berate ourselves and beat ourselves up individually, we need to realise that unless we are part of a community where that stuff is mutual and reciprocal, it's, it can't work. That Jesus is, is speaking about communities, not speaking about individuals. Um, I just want to get uh, practical just for, for one minute. <clears throat> Imagine that, me, practical. Um, it occurred to me that, because we, we, we talked about the model of family and covenant, and it occurred to me that uh, we need to remember in this community that uh, what kind of family we are. Um, where, where's that slide? Here it is. Are we nuclear? Um, it's easy to think of family as uh, parents and children. And I think in the context of a community like this, that can be quite dangerous. Um, that, of course, of course, you might have a relationship with some of the older people in this community that is somewhat parental. Yeah? Uh, church can be an amazing place to reparent in, in lots of ways and, and find relationships with older people that are perhaps healthier or that are healing and the same goes the other way, that you can find, that older people can find um, relationships with some of the younger people that are like the relationship of a, of a son and daughter. And those, those are beautiful things, but we can't presume upon that in certain areas, because ultimately our identity is brothers and sisters. And how that plays itself out is that um, for younger people, you can't consider the issue of money in this community I'm shifting gear a little bit here but you can't consider the issue of money in this community to be for the grown-ups it's not for the grown-ups to work out because we're all brothers and sisters um, and I, I remember years ago I went on a, a um, tour from Darwin down to Alice Springs and I met a couple of German backpackers on this tour and this girl who was probably about 18 came to Melbourne a few months later and she said, oh, can my friend and I stay with you? I, I was in a share house at the time, but we had a spare room. I said, oh, yeah, sure, come and stay. And um, so at this stage, I'm probably 35, maybe. And uh, it was incredible. This girl, this 18-year-old girl, treated me like her dad. It, to the extent that she didn't buy a single thing while she was there. She ate all the food in the house. Uh, she didn't buy us anything as a thank you present. It was kind of funny at at the very end, they had to get a tram into the city. So, oh, should we go and have a coffee before, before we go? I said, oh, that sounds nice. And, <laughs> and go and have a coffee. And then they go and pay for their coffees and leave me to pay for mine. It's like, you couldn't even... I had you in my house for four days and you couldn't even buy me a coffee. But it was a mindset thing. For, to, her, to her, parents are people that pay for everything. Um, and I think there's a danger that... Yeah, that, that we have a, a version of that in our community where you go, they're, they're the kind of grown-up people that know about money and they take care of it. Um, I'm terrible with money. I don't have a house, so therefore I spend everything that I own. And you know, all of this kind of... These, this is something that we need to challenge. Um, the older people in this community are your brothers and sisters, not your parents. Uh, and in the same way, the reverse can also happen. You get older members of a community that expect younger people to make a financial contribution but maintain tight control over the financial decisions in the community. And that is unacceptable as well because we are brothers and sisters. And so it's not about, you know, you, you're 18 now, so start paying some board, but you're not making any decisions about the bills. Um, 
So there are three things, I guess, that need to happen for us in this community. If you don't know what this community spends its money on, then you are treating this community like there are grown-ups and you're not one of them. Uh, you need to be informed. Talking about money is not just about pay your dues. In, in fact, that can be really dangerous because you're just playing back into the contractual relationship of you know, paying for a ticket. This is not a product to consume. This is a family. And so you need to become informed about what this, money, what this community spends its money on and involved in the conversation about it. Because on the one hand, when you look at what this church spends its money on, that might encourage you to, to give more. The flip side of that is you might decide that there are things this church is spending money on that it shouldn't be. And so you can challenge that and say, why, why are we spending money on this? Isn't, is that really a priority for us? Yeah, but you can't do that if you don't know what this church is spending its money on. So at a very practical level, that's what being brothers and sisters, that's what having a covenantal relationship involves. It involves knowing what the family finances are and having an opinion, having, having a role in the conversation. I'll probably wrap it up soon. Is there anything else that people are burning to say? Firstly, where is that information? Is it on the website? Yep. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Uh, the other thing I'll say, you know, we've, we talk a lot about um, this community being invested in this community, being part of this community. I'm not ashamed to say that when you give money to a community, you become wedded to that community. So my challenge is, and I'm not ashamed to say, and I'm not part of the leadership here, for all of us who want to become part of this community, give regularly to this community because that is one way that you become stronger and, and more involved with the community. Where your money is your heart. That's right. Where your money is, your heart is also. Thanks, Julie. Um, all right. Uh, just quickly reflecting on a couple of the things that were said before, you know, Emily talking about that project in Vietnam and talking about Indigenous Australia and Reconciliation Week. I think this just plays itself out in in areas outside of our community as well, that it's, uh, it can become overwhelming when you think about the need that is out there and you think about massive issues like reconciliation and, and um, you know, entire countries that, that lack things that we consider to be essential. Um, but I think it needs, for it not to be paralysing, we need to engage with these things through through relationships, through particularity. I mean, that's, that is the beauty of the incarnation, that it leads us to the particular, it leads us to the individual. And that's why it's so beautiful to hear about projects where uh, it's not just, you know, give money to Oxfam, but it's <coughs> here is a girl with cerebral palsy whose mental faculties are completely unimpaired, <coughs> who is lying on a floor staring at the roof day in and day out. Um, and when you hear about that, when you hear about an individual and you <coughs> have empathy for that situation, that draws generosity out of you. That is how it's meant to be rather than kind of lobbing money to solve your guilt. And I guess it's the same with the, with the issue of reconciliation. It's easy to, to give money to um, kind of national Aboriginal leadership um, or whatever it might be, but um, seeking some individual relationships, some particular project, some particular set of people that you can engage with is 
is the Bible's recipe for, for engagement and for drawing generosity out of us, its particularity. And a globalised culture always works against that. It just it paralyzes us. It makes everything overwhelming. Everything is too big. What can an individual do? And it's it is you know it's a terrible thing. But yeah, thinking globally and acting locally is um, I, th- I think that is biblical that idea. Okay, that's probably enough. Uh, I just had some homework. Um, oh, that's not it. Uh, yeah. So think about whether. Uh, so this is my homework. It can be yours as well. Um, think about whether my relationship with this community is contractual or covenantal. Uh, prayerfully think about beliefs that shape my attitude to my money and my possessions. Yeah? Get involved in the conversation this community has about money. And yeah, so Steve will tell you uh, later where you can access information and how you can get involved in that conversation. Form relationships of intimacy so that you are in a position to know if people have needs that you can meet so that generosity is drawn out of you and um, apply all of the above to all of your other types of spending and consumption. Easy. <laughs> Are there any, um, any comments or any final questions, perhaps? Yeah, Peter. Yeah, and I guess that, that's what I hope that we take away from this, that if we try to talk about money in isolation, it just creates guilt and it's just very unhealthy and unhelpful. But if we think of money as just one form of consumption, one form of exchange, one form of giving in generosity and all of that, then it, it helps us to have a framework rather than just going, oh, I should give more money to church. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Yeah, Sam. <laughs> yeah, um, I love all this sort of stuff. Like, really gets me really passionate about everything. Um, and in particular, it really, well, it's great to talk about this kind of stuff in terms of a church community. I think it's really important for us to apply it to all aspects of um, different communities that we participate in um, to really kind of blur the idea of, hey, this is our church community, but um, all people um, are God's people as well. And so, in that way, we should treat everything. Um, with the same dignity and intensity. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Okay, let's end it there. I'll just pray for us because we're going to need it. Uh, and uh, I just noticed the uh, cracker and the juice on the corner of the table, and that triggered me to think, hmm, and communion. Uh, and I did write something down about it. Don't you worry about that. I guess that's right. Um, this, is, this is a symbol of God's overwhelming generosity to us, obviously. And um, the fact that he loves us with greater passion and particularity than I love my girls. Otherwise, why would he sacrifice so much for us? And so as, you, um, as I pray, then have your juice and have your cracker and... Um, yeah, reflect on how intimately God must know you that God was willing to give up his only son for you and, and I guess ask God to give you relationships of intimacy and 
particularity, that draw, that kind of abundant generosity out of you. So let's pray. Loving God, I thank you that, that all are welcome at your table, that you are a wonderful and generous host who invites all to eat with you and to feast upon you. And we ask that as we uh, drink this juice and as we eat this cracker, we might think about um, that love that you have for us and that we might ask you through your spirit to give us that passionate love for others that you have shown to us in your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Susie might call you Mr. Thrifty, but I think I would call you um, Captain PowerPoint, Captain PowerPoint um, Mr. Communicator Extraordinaire. I just uh, love how, I just so appreciate how Rod takes us into ways of thinking that uh, for me are out of the ordinary and it's so refreshing to hear a talk on giving without any mention to Malachi chapter 3. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> Remarkable. Um, can I just say in regards to the scripture that, um, that Rod shared from Acts chapter 4, there are two ways in which we can view that scripture. One is as prescriptive, that is, that is a prescriptive way in which we are to um, uh, carry out uh, our Christianity or it or it could be descriptive. That's what took place in Jerusalem not long after the resurrection as a community of God were gathering together and responding to the action of the Spirit. I personally believe that is descriptive. It is actually not prescriptive. Um, and so um, I just think that's part of the narrative of, of the book of Acts and they were just describing what took place. And I don't believe that it is a prescriptive form for us or pattern for us therefore to follow however it does capture the spirit of generosity and hospitality and awareness of need that we are to embody and to enact um, in regards to your question Anthony we operate and always have with an open book policy so anytime anybody who is part of the family is welcome um, to uh, ask or see uh, financial statements um, don't see me speak to Lou about that. Um, and I'd, I think we would, our giving is around about 20% or thereabouts. So whatever comes in, we, we would have, I think, around about a 20% we give outside of ourselves. Um, if you analyse the income streams and look at where the money goes, you'll probably be able to calculate what my wage is, if you kind of want to do that. Um, and it's certainly um, not extremely high or anything like that. Um, 
so you can, um, yeah, you're welcome at any time to inquire. Um, we have an AGM every year um, in which, as a community, uh, where we go through the financial figures, uh, we, they're talked about. It's actually a little bit disappointing. Well, it's t- how you look at it. Um, I think last year we probably had about 15 or 20 people that stayed around for the AGM. You can look at that two ways. One is that people have an incredible level of trust uh, in the way things are carried out here or that they don't really care or I would much prefer to have a really high turnout. So the questions can be asked and, and um, um, you know, that there is openness and vulnerability there with, with our finances. So um, I think that's about it. But... Um, uh, it will be probably around about August sometime, September. So what happens is uh, we don't have to be audited, um, but what we do do, um, we because a, a professional audit is, is really expensive, what we do is we take our books and we have somebody external just have a look through them to kind of check them out, make sure they're okay. So August, September normally, yeah. Thanks, Rod. Um, always enjoy having you share it with us. And uh, why don't we stand and conclude that service this morning with a benediction. Loving Father, we thank you for receiving our worship, hearing our prayers, feeding us with your word, and encouraging us in our community. As we leave this place, take us and use us to love and serve you and all people in the power of your spirit and the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.